American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down like blues on Tuesdays. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And we are History for Jerks. History for Jerks. And we have dropped into a new year. 1958 for you. 1958. What a year. Yeah, we are getting. Yeah, it's packed with stuff, man. And we are getting to the end of the 50s. Our season five has been going on what seems like an eternity. Uh, uh, Since the 50s. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. This was a current event show. This was. Yeah. We started this in the 50s. We were alive in the 50s. And for some reason. We just never moved on, and we're still talking about We're the 50s. still in 1958 as we slog through the monotony. All right. So let's if you start. like if you like monotony, you've come to the right place. Stop. That's not true. No, minutia, maybe. Minutia. All right. Go ahead. We're we're yeah slogging through the minutia, but we're gonna jump right in 1958 and and not take a minute longer of your time, except to tell you about Magic Mind, which I just took a quick shot of, so you will hear me. Uh, becoming more, uh, what do you say, uh, more energetic and lively and in the creative zone in the next hour of this podcast. Wait, that's because, a lot of pressure for you. Because I just took, yeah, because I took, I took a shot of Magic Mind, which, by the way, Pete Holmes loves it. I met Pete Holmes this weekend at a comedy show, and he loves Magic Mind, by the way. He's a comedian. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, and it, I... Forgot to tell him, hey, they sponsor my podcast, just because we didn't get a chance to talk about it. But Pete Holmes loves it, man. All right. And it does a really good thing. It's got matcha Mm -hmm. and all kinds of cool things. It's really, you know, it's the mushrooms mixed. It's it's all vegan now with agave instead of honey. So, boom. Welcome aboard, vegans. Anyway, Magic Mind, check it out and check out our code. You can get a discount by using... Our code, American Timelines. What's the code? MagicMind.co. MagicMind.co slash American. And get up to 56% off your subscription for the next 10 days only with my code, American20. All caps, American20. Put that code in. You get 56% off your subscription. Used to be only 40%, but MagicMind is like, yo, we love American Timelines so much. Get your prescription. It really, uh, it makes me feel good. All right. All right. Now let's jump into the show, 1958. So as always, when we jump into a new year, uh, AIM, there are things that don't really have an exact date, but they right. happened in that year. Uh, some are like an amalgamation of things, but I'm going to go through some of those things before we jump into January. How about that? That sounds good. All right. Uh, you know how we used to talk about the price of things? Yes. A price of an RCA Whirlpool refrigerator. What do you think? It was mm. in 1958. $43. Eight, eight, cubic, eight cubic feet. No, in 1958, it was $118. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's a lot good. of money. That's good, though. 1958. Can you imagine getting a refrigerator for 118 bucks? Well, I wonder, what is that $118 in today's money, though? $85 Good billion. No, I have no idea. Okay. But um, here's a little thing that was happening in 1958. Uh mm. 
the word modem was first used in 1958. Oh. And is derived from the words modulator and demodulator because it performs both tasks in order to send and receive data. Okay. You believe they had a modem back in 1958? No, that's crazy. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, in 1958, sparrows uh, were suspected of consuming approximately four pounds of grain per sparrow per year in China. Oh. And and so sparrow nests were destroyed. Aww. Eggs were broken and chicks were killed. Millions of people organized into groups and hit noisy pots and pans to prevent sparrows from resting in their nests with the goal of causing them to drop dead from exhaustion. Oh, my God. And yeah, isn't that weird? In addition to these tactics, citizens also simply shot the birds down from the sky. Uh, and so what the campaign did was it depleted the sparrow population because they were seen as a pest, uh, pushing it to near extinction within China. Yeah. Now, some sparrows found a refuge in the extra extraterritorial premises of various diplomatic missions in China. The personnel of the Polish embassy in Beijing denied the Chinese request of entering the premises of the embassy to scare away the sparrows who were hiding there. And as a result, the embassy was surrounded by people with drums. So people are just, they're just trying oh, to really get rid of get these sparrows, of sparrows to help the crops because they were, yeah, they were in this big, big competition. China was with other communist countries to produce the most uh, crops. Right. After two days of constant drumming, the Poles had to use shovels to clear the embassy of dead sparrows. Jeez. So that was the thing that killed them. And so the effects of this, by April 1960, Chinese leaders changed their opinion in part due to the influence of ornithologist So Hin Shang, who pointed out that sparrows ate a large number of insects as well as grains. Yeah. So You're while the campaign the while the campaign was meant to increase yields, concurrent drought there were droughts and floods, which also ruined crops. But as well as the lacking sparrow population. And then the insects eat all the grains. Yeah, yeah, so it decreased rice yields. In the same month, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong ordered the campaign against sparrows to end. Sparrows were replaced with bedbugs as the extermination of sparrows had upset the ecological balance, which subsequently resulted in surging locusts and insect populations that destroyed crops Jesus. due to the lack of a natural predator. And then they found the, the bedbugs eat. The crabs. Yeah, that's probably a problem with bedbugs. With no sparrows to eat them, locust populations ballooned, swarming the country and compounding the ecological problems already caused by the Great Leap Forward, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, including widespread deforestation and misuse of poisons and pesticides. Yeah. Uh, so these there's locusts everywhere because they killed all the sparrows. Uh, Duh. And so this ecological imbalance is credited with exacerbating the Great Chinese Famine, which is also in part due to the Great Leap Forward, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Do you know what the Great Leap Forward is? I'm trying to think. I don't, No, I don't. I'll talk to you about it in a little bit. But the Chinese government eventually resorted to importing 250,000 sparrows from the Soviet Union to replenish their population. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy, that whole thing? Jesus Christ. And then the Soviet Union had a locust problem after that, yeah, probably. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe they had just had some to spare. Uh, some the, sparrows to spare? spare? Can you spare a sparrow, my friend? The internationally recognized peace symbol, you know, the symbol yeah. for peace, yes. it was designed in 1958. Did you know that? Oh, isn't that nice? You want to know who designed it and why? Sure. Gerald Holtham. Mm -hmm. He designed the logo for the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Sweet. He was a professional designer and artist and a graduate of the Royal College of Arts. He was a conscientious objector who had worked on a farm in Norfolk during the Second World War. 
And he explained that the symbol incorporated the, s- the letters N and D uh-huh. for nuclear disarmament in there. And oh. But he later wrote to Hugh Brock, mm-hmm. editor of Peace News, explaining the genesis, genesis of his idea in greater, more personal depth. He said, I was in despair, deep despair. I drew myself, the representative of an individual in despair with hands and palms outstretched oh, outward yeah. like this and, and downwards in a manner of Goya's peasant before the firing squad. And I formalized the drawing into a line and put a circle around it. So that's right. it's like a guy with his arms straight out, which I did, never knew why. Yeah, I never thought about peace. that either. But now you know. Now you know why this symbol means peace and what the heck it is. Also, 1958, the guitar that Marty McFly played yeah. in Back to the Future in 1955 uh-huh. is inaccurate because that guitar wasn't created until 1958. Oh. So they fucked up Back to the Future and they owe us all an apology. Yeah. So nobody stop until you get an apology. Nobody stop rocking. Nobody stop rocking with that guitar, that Gibson guitar. Uh, did you know, you, you want to guess what year the 50-star American flag showed up? Uh, 1958. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. According to UnitedStatesFlag.com, the story of the 50-star flag is an intriguing tidbit of American history. Yeah. It begins with the impending statehood of Alaska and Hawaii. Or colonization, should we say? I guess. Because Hawaii had a queen and everything. Well, they both became states between 1898 and 1912. Yeah. Uh, or territories. Territories. In 1916, the first official statehood bill for Alaska came before Congress. And three years later, the bill for Hawaii followed. Statehood legislation was brought up year after year for both territories, but by 1958, it seemed only Alaska would gain statehood, right? Mm-hmm. So it should have been only 49 states. Yeah. And so flag makers began designing 49-star flags, uh, anticipating that Alaska was going to be a new state. Yeah. But meanwhile, 17-year-old Bob Heft, a fucking genius, he decided to create a 50-star flag for his high school history project because he was wise beyond his fucking years, this kid. Yeah. Heft had an ongoing interest in flags and Uh politics. He loved flags. He was a flag-loving motherfucker. He concluded that President Eisenhower, who was a Republican, would want to add Hawaii shortly after the addition of Alaska since Hawaii was predominantly Republican and Alaska Democratic. Oh. You know what I'm saying? So he wants to get some more Republicans up in here. So Heft used his mother's sewing machine, his mom, his hot mom probably, had a sewing machine and a hot iron to add a new blue Canton and 100 hand-cut stars, he spent a lot of time on this, Yeah, uh, 50 for each side, to the field of an old 48-star flag. With a yardstick, he was able to place the stars in a proportional pattern. After 12 grueling hours working on this flag, it was sewn and pressed. He handed the project in to his history teacher. His, his history teacher was no other than a guy named Stanley Pratt. Hmm. Beautiful Stanley Pratt with a beautiful body. He, f- he first asked Hef where he got his crystal ball referring to Hess' presumption that Alaska and Hawaii would both, both be added to the Union. Right. He then commented that if this design is accepted by Congress, he would change Pratt's grade from a B- to an A. Oh. And Heft was up for that challenge. He said, God, that kid I'll worked t- that hard on yeah. it. He was going to give him he a was B-? Gonna give him a B-? Minus, yeah, because he's like, How, there's too many stars, you idiot. And, he's, and you know, Heft was like, I'm taking this challenge, motherfucker. So he sent the flag to Ohio's governor, and then he gave it to Congressman Walter Henry Moeller. Heft asked Mueller to store the flag until there was a need for a 50-star flag. He was like, yeah, whatever, kid. 
And then in January of 1959, Alaska was admitted to the Union. And July 4th of that year, the 49-star flag became official, but it was short-lived. By the end of August, Eisenhower signed a proclamation adding Hawaii to the Union, as Heftab predicted. Congressman Mueller brought Heft's flag to the design committee, where Eisenhower himself selected the flag to become the national emblem. And on July 4th, 1960, Heft and Eisenhower stood together both completely nude in Washington to watch the first 50-star flag be raised. Except they weren't nude. That's the only part that's not true. So there you go. This little kid designed it. I had no idea. That's pretty cool. Yeah, not many people know that. So you do a little trivia switcher. Like, hey, you know who made that flag? And everybody will say, Betsy Ross. And you'll say, no, you idiot. Right. Because it didn't happen until 58. Well, another thing that happened in 1958, did you know that there was a cha-cha championship? Dance championship of the Cha Cha no. in 1958 in Hong Kong, no. and you know who was the national dance champion winning that championship? No, Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah, he was a national Cha Cha champion. Oh, that's pretty cool. I bet most of you didn't know that. If you're listening to this podcast right now, wherever you are, if you didn't know that, stand up and scream. I didn't know that Bruce Lee was a cha-cha championship. Wherever you are, if you're at work, I don't care if you're in an office, I don't care if you're in a car, pull your car over to the side of the road, get out, take your shirt off, and yell that. I did not know that. I did not know that. That's weird, wacky, wild stuff. Okay, uh, 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 kitchens are a lot cleaner in 1958, thanks to the introduction of a new product called Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. Did you know that in 1998, People Magazine called Mr. Clean one of the sexiest men alive? Oh, Come on. Isn't that dumb? Yes. Well, I mean, he's probably one of the, you know, uh, most popular mascots I'd like to fuck. He's a MILF. Wouldn't you rather fuck him than Lucky Charms or that goddamn honeybee? Um, snap, I'm going to go Snap, with... crackle, and pop or Mr. Clean? Who'd you rather bang? I'm going to go with Mr. Bubbles. Oh. You want to just put your... That bubble that made your, of pink bubbles? Put it all over your... Maybe Mr. Peanut. Yeah, that guy's hot. I like a monocle. That guy knows how to fuck. All right, uh, Michael Jackson, yeah. Prince, and Madonna were all born in the Great Lakes region within two months of each other in 1958. Did you know that? Well, how? So those are that's just a little preview of some birthdays. What was in the water? This next uh, few episodes. Yeah. Yeah, Prince... Was born in Minneapolis, Madonna in Bay City, near Frankenmuth, Michigan, by Saginaw, and Mikey J in Gary, Indiana. It's always Christmas. All in the Great Lakes region. The Great Lakes region makes the greatest people. Because guess what? I'm from the Great Lakes region, motherfucker. So history for jerks would not exist if it weren't for the Great Lakes. It's always Christmas in Frankenmuth. Frankenmuth, it is always Christmas. You all should go to Frankenmuth immediately. Uh, so there you go. We'll get to those birthdays a little more in depth in the next few episodes because 1958 is a great year for great musicians. Uh, in 1958, Crayola changed one of the crayon color names. Was it from uh, some kind of racial slur? I don't think so. I think it was just that they originally had a color called Prussian blue. Oh. And I think they changed it because most kids didn't know, never heard of the old nation of Prussia. Exactly. And they changed it to midnight blue. But Prussian blue is a ver is a synthetic color that was created 
mm-hmm. uh, in like 1704 by a chemist from Berlin who mixed a red dye with iron sulfate and a cyanide mixture because mm-hmm. he needed a dark blue. And that's what he got. I'm not sure why he wanted that blue. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Larry King crashed into JFK's car in 1958. What? Yeah. Larry King crashed into JFK's car. Uh, according to an episode of Jimmy Kimmel, where Larry King told the story. Uh, oh my God. And Larry King said that JFK said he'd forget the whole thing if King just promised to vote for him when he ran for president. <laughs> That's a thing that happened in 1958. That's the American crazy. Express card was introduced in 1958. Cracked Magazine came out in 1958. And AARP, your favorite magazine that you now get, came out in 1958. Shut up. What's shut up matter? about that. You just shut up about that. Well, congratulations. You are now... An AARP. You know what? Maybe Eligible. I'll go to the grocery store at 7.30 on a Wednesday and get a discount. You should go to the grocery Fuck store. Fuck you. You could go to Burger King at 5 a.m. now and fit right in. Shh. You would get a lot of attention from those old guys that sit at Burger King at 5 in the morning. Ew. And now we're jumping into January of 1958. January 1st, 1958 was a, what day of the week was the name? January 1st? Yeah. What day of the week was it? Tuesday. No, it was a Wednesday. Oh. You definitely don't have that uh, autism where you can no. know every No, day. I don't. I know a couple of guys that could do that. Anyway, on that day, January 1st, 1958, the Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, they, had the, they ranked number one in college football in the final coaches poll by the USPI. In the mm-hmm. 1957 season, mm-hmm. and they defeated the University of Oregon Webfoots. Ooh, Oregon. That's got to be that's got to be a racial slur. Yeah, I think that's why they changed to the Ducks now. I yeah, think. I mean, uh, I don't know what it is, but I, think I don't know like what a, nationality. Probably making Native fun Amer- of Native American thing. What do you think? A Webfoot? That's a know. duck. Oh, duck's a Webfoot, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, they beat the Oregon <laughs> Webfoots, the Pacific Coast Conference champions. But they were ranked number 17. Ohio State won 10 to 7 in the Rose Bowl before a crowd of over 98,000 in Pasadena, California. 98,000? 98,000 people. Jesus. Can you imagine that traffic? That's all I can think about is the traffic getting out of there. Oh, that's a lot of traffic. And that's the same day that Grandmaster Flash was born. Awesome. Stage name Joseph Sadler. I mean, stage name for Joseph Sadler. He was a Barbados-born American hip-hop music recording artist and rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee. He was born in Bridgetown, Barbados. Are you a big fan of Grandmaster Flash? I'm trying to think of his song that I know. You want me to? Yeah, you do it. You know him. Tell you? Yeah. What is it? I'm having trouble. Having trouble, remember? Um, Yeah. It's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Is who he's. Oh. The message. You would know. It's, it's got a lot. Any Grandmaster Flash song just has. Um, there's a lot of lines that people have stolen over the years. Oh. You know, he's one yeah. of the original guys. Um, he's considered one of the pioneers of hip hop. Yes. DJing, cutting, scratching, and mixing. Uh, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. Oh, good. The first hip hop act to be. Oh. Uh, honored there. How about that? God, it took till 2007 for them to put hip hop yeah. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, really you remember it's ra- you remember sad. racism? I, psh, yesterday, today, every day. January 4th, Not 1958. Not that I experience it, but that I know it exists. You're aware of it. I'm aware of it. You're aware of it. 
And we don't like it. No. We don't agree with it. Don't care for it. January 4th, 1958 was a Saturday, and Sputnik 1 had been launched three months earlier. Don't tell the story about the dog again. That was Sputnik 2. Well, that was too sad. But uh, but at this point... I made Ryan fast forward through that part. You did. The Sputnik 1, uh, which had been launched in October of 57, was mm-hmm. the first man-made satellite in history, fell out of orbit and orbit and burnt up upon re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Oh. On January 4th. Nobody was on there? Nope. Nobody was on there, I don't think. Oh, good. Maybe some bugs or something. <laughs> Bless you. Are you okay? Yes. Um, I'm going to skip that. Uh, January 5th, 1958 was a Sunday. Bellevue Baptist Church, now a big mega church in Memphis, Tennessee, became the first church in history to televise its services live using its own equipment. Mm. Oops, sorry. You gotta silence that phone. Sorry, sorry. Okay, sorry. Monday, January 6th, 1958. A U.S. Navy Mercator patrol bomber with 12 crews crashed into a neighborhood in Norfolk, Norfolk Virginia. Norfolk? When, when its engines failed during its approach to the Norfolk Naval Air Station. Four of the servicemen on the plane were killed, and although three cottages at the intersection of 22nd Bay and East Ocean View Avenue were destroyed, the occupants sustained only minor injuries. Oh, the television game show that same day, the television game show Dotto, hosted by Jack Nars, premiered on the CBS Television Network in the U.S. with a premise of general knowledge, quiz, and connected dots mixed together. The show, along with its primetime version, which premiered on the rival NBC network in July, was abruptly canceled after its last episode on August 15th. Soon afterward, Dotto was among the shows identified as providing answers in advance to some of the contestants. Oh, they cheaters. Cheating. They were cheating. God, can you imagine the till? You had like two choices of what to wa- watch back then, and one of them was a Connect the Dots game show. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, you want to watch Dotto tonight? I guess. Nothing else There's to nothing do. nothing fucking else to do. What else are you going to do? You can't do anything else. You nope. can't play Sudoku. Nope. You can't play Marvel Snap on your cell phone. They, If I went back in time and said, hey, I'm going to play some Marvel Snap on my cell phone, they'd be like, what are you fucking talking about? What, Get out of here. What are you on? Uh, what are you on about? What are you on about, they'd say. On January 9th, 1958, was a Thursday. And after eating a final meal of steak and then smoking six cigars and spending his last evening reading a newspaper, reading newspaper clippings about himself, Elmer Trigger Burke, 40 years old, American bank robber and contract killer, was executed at Sing Sing Prison according to the New York Times. Oh, wow. He was placed into the chair. He waved and smiled at the crowd that had gathered to witness his execution. Uh, he was a bank robber? According, yeah. Bank robber and contract killer. According, oh, contract this, killer. Was, this was all according to Public Enemy Number 1, The Short Life and Violent Times of Two, Gun Crowley and Trigger Burke, uh, which is a book by John William Toohey. Who was Trigger Elmer Trigger Burke, you want you ask? Well, I'm about to tell you who Elmer Trigger Burke was. All right. He was a notorious hitman during the mid to late forties, nicknamed Trigger because he would shoot people behind the ear with a forty five. Yikes. He was raised by his idol and his brother Charlie, who had been murdered by a man named George Gall. Uh and after that, everybody knew about Trigger, so they knew George Gall was living on borrowed time. 
to get revenge years later, Burke shot goal, you guessed it, behind the ear. Oh, man. But uh, Trigger uh, Trigger Burke, he would uh, shake down businesses in Manhattan, and he'd have them pay him for protection. He murdered his pal Edward Poochie Walsh, who was sitting in a bar because he intervened when Burke got, a, got in a fight with another patron. Uh-huh. And uh, Poochie stopped Burke from kicking the man while he was down. Oh. Seething, Burke questioned Poochie's loyalty. He left the bar in a huff and returned around 3.30 so like in the morning. Joe Pesci type. Yeah, he's a little guy. Mm-hmm. Little, little tiny guy. And he returned a little bit later to that bar at 3.30 a.m. with a pistol and proceeded to shoot Walsh dead in front of a half a dozen alcohol-added witnesses. Jeez. Now, this they were friends, so right. he, like he didn't give a fuck. Yeah. In fact, Burke was dating Poochie's sister at the time. Oh, my God. So uh, Elmer Trigger Burke was approximately five foot seven. And he weighed approximately 140 pounds. He never fought with his fists, always used his 45. After Poochie Walsh's death, the 33-year-old Burke eluded authorities for more than a year until he was suspected of plugging another neighborhood guy. In November of 53, ex-con John McQueenie was shot in the back of the head in a Hell's Kitchen tavern. Same M.O., same prime suspect. But detectives hoping to pin this one on Burke were stymied yet again because the bartender and several customers who were there told cops they didn't see a thing. I think they were scared of Trigger. Everyone was glued to the boxing match on TV, they said, including the victim who never saw his killer coming. Two months later, the New York PD finally named Burke a murder suspect after a third shooting. And that's this was George Gull, who had killed his brother. Uh... He was found with two bullets to the back of the head on West 53rd Street, just a block away from the 9th Avenue bar where McQueenie was gunned down. Cops couldn't find Burke, though, who by then was said to have built a thriving business as a gun for hire for local gangsters. When he wasn't shooting friends and acquaintances, Burke was the number one suspect in a string of unsolved murders in the underworld since 1952. But cops couldn't find him because he was up in Boston, mm-hmm. where he'd lined up a contract killing linked to the infamous Brinks robbery. Remember we talked about the Brinks robbery of 50? Yes. So those guys, uh, they knew that one of their guys was going to talk, so they hired Trigger Burke uh, to silence Joseph Spex O'Keefe. Oh, because they thought he was going to be there Yeah, because they thought he was going to blab to the feds. According to police, Burke opened fire on O'Keefe with a machine gun from a moving car, but he only managed to wound him. Boston police nabbed Burke at a hideout days later and found the machine gun that got him a life sentence under Massachusetts law. So at this point, he was locked away in a Boston jail. And you think, oh, they got him. He's done. He's done for, right? That's what you think. So he's awaiting trial in this Boston jail, facing a grim future when he made a daring daylight escape. Oh. You see, his Brinks robbery benefactor who paid him to go kill that guy had paid inmates to disable the locks on jail doors, and it paid guards to look away, allowing Burke to jump into a waiting getaway car uh, and and lam it up just days before his trial was set to start. Okay. For over a year, Burke hid out in a rented Charleston, South Carolina house he shared with a pal who was himself wanted for a Queens, New York bank robbery. That arrangement ended, though, when the friend and his wife went missing and were presumed dead. Yeah. I was going to say. Two more likely homicides tied to old Trigger. But an anonymous tip led to Burke's capture, and he was extradited to New York, where he went on trial in 1955. His litany of alleged murders shocked the public, but the accused homicidal maniac was only tried for the slaying of his old buddy Pucci. 
Burke's lawyers made much of his hard scrabble background in an effort to gain sympathy with the jury. They said, oh, he's just 5'7", he's only 130 pounds, he's poor, he had religious parents, he had spent time in a reform school as a teen for armed robbery, he did a nickel upstate for a liquor store holdup all blind drunk. He joined the army, he served, he was in the Battle of the Bulge, give him a break. Yeah. Yes, his attorneys argued he was a bad boozer with a terrible temper, prone to blackouts when he overindulged, but he was nowhere near the ruthless hitman the police and press made him out to be, and there was no way he would hurt an old pal like Poochie. Uh-huh. But the jury wasn't convinced. That's good. And the fearsome killer known as Trigger was sentenced to die over what amounted to a drunken fit of rage because they never got him for any of the other alleged murders. And so he died on January 9th, 1958, after those six cigars. Wow. That's a way to go Daily News. Out. Yeah. Yep. Electric chair. You can see pictures of him online. Just a little, little baby guy. There's a baby. Then on Sunday, January 12th, <laughs> 1958, that little baby criminal, just a little <laughs> tiny sweet baby. On January 12, 1958, it was a Sunday, Chairman Mao uh, at Nanning, the capital of the Gongji province, mm-hmm. China's uh, China's leader, who's who Chairman Mao is, he announced his plans for the Great Leap Forward, which I mentioned earlier. Yes. This was a five-year economic and social plan to revise agricultural production to the People's Republic of China by the relocation of farmers into people's communes in oh, order to wow. increase the amount of food produced. So China was in this big competition with Russia and other communist nations to be the most communist. Like yeah. I'm going we're going to show that we're the greatest communist and we're going to make so much stuff by being a com- you know no more capitalism anywhere right. and we're going to be the greatest communist and show how great communism can be. Right. The result an estimated 20 million people dying in starvation. Yep. See, the Great Leap Forward was the second five-year plan of the People's Republic of China. It was an economic and social campaign uh, from 58 to 62 to move the country from an agrarian economy into a communist society. Mao decreed that efforts to multiply grain yields and bring industry to the countryside should be increased. And so instead of receiving a payment proportional to the work they performed, commune members would now receive most of their income based on the communist distribution principle of to each according to his need. Right. Known as free supply. Yeah. So in the new system, income entitlements were determined based on the average daily caloric needs of each demographic group. Oh Males, goodness. women, children, yeah. and the elderly. So depending on what you were, they determined what you needed. And, and they it, gave you it. And that's what you got, no matter how hard you worked. And in accordance with these entitlements, and regardless of labor tar- participation, 70% of the commune's distributable income, income was distributed at the end of each harvest. Only 30% of the total was given based on work that was actually completed. So you did get some based on completion, but only 30%. Uh, and to ensure that all remnants of capitalism were thoroughly eradicated in the new communes, small private plots and domestic animals that individual families had previously uh, were now commu- communized. Oh, yeah, those poor people lost yeah. all their shit. They lost all the stuff they had worked for. Yeah. And free markets where peasants would sell their surplus was now abolished. Private farming was prohibited, and those people who engaged in it were persecuted and labeled counter-revolutionaries. Mm. Restrictions on rural people were enforced with what they called public struggle sessions. Anybody who was found trying to sell a surplus or their own things, uh, they would uh, be subject. Yeah, they, Shame yeah, them. and they would. Well, they would be 
a struggle session is a public beating to death. Oh, my God. Of anyone caught private farming. Oh, my God. Public struggle sessions, they called them. And to spur even greater increases in farm output, uh, there were contests held throughout the countryside uh, where first the members of one commune would pledge to double their grain output at the next harvest. Then a neighboring commune would counter-pledge to raise their harvest by 125% and so on. Yeah. And by August of 1958, Central Party leaders believed that food was abundant, even though it really wasn't, because everybody was afraid to tell the the truth truth. about how much they were making. Right. Uh, They were nowhere near these quotas, but they said they were meeting them. Uh, And and then local officials, who also knew the reports were grossly exaggerated, they were afraid to tell their superiors... uh, because they had to fill quotas, too. Yeah. So they lied, inflating their harvest estimates while squeezing every last grain from the poor peasants who were compelled to tighten their belts just to survive, scared to disturb their superiors. Yeah, that's I've been sucks. in a lot of places where the boss at the top is yelling and screaming at everybody, so yeah. everybody's afraid to tell them when they fail because they don't want them to know. Then they get mad when yeah. nobody tells them anything. Right. It's a terrible way to manage things. Higher officials did not dare to report the economic disaster, which was being caused by these policies, and uh, national officials blaming bad weather for the decline in food output took little or no, no action. Millions of people died in China during this Great Leap, with estimates ranging from 15 to 55 million, making the Great Chinese Famine the largest or wow. second largest famine in human history. And, you know, uh, couple that with the, the weather and the sparrow thing. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, no awful. kidding. I got a lot of this information from WondriumDaily.com. And that's a reputable source? I think so. It looked like a pretty cool website. It had limited ads everywhere. Only a few porn pop-ups on that page. <laughs> uh, that's the same day that the two-point conversion in college football was approved in the U.S. by an 11-0 to zero vote. You don't even know what that is, do you? I maybe I do, maybe I don't. <laughs> it was... Uh, one of the committee members who voted for it, athletic director Fritz Chrysler of the University of Michigan, 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 University of Michigan, he commented after the meeting in Fort Lauderdale, it's a progressive step which will make football more interesting for the spectators, adding that the rule will add drama to what has been the dullest, most stupid play in the game, the extra point. The yeah, extra points are I'd dumb. say pretty much every point in the game is the most stupid. Hey, <laughs> you back off football. And then uh, Monday, January 13th, 1958, the Metropolitan Opera in New York, conductor Pietro Simara suffered a stroke and toppled from his podium shortly after starting the second scene of Giuseppe Verdi's La Forza del Destino. Oh, bummer. So we know what happened then? What? Violinist Walter Hagen came out of the orchestra and continued conducting the score, working from memory without interruption. Really? Yeah, I don't care if you have a stroke and fall over, that opera's got to keep going. Yeah. Egan conducted for the remaining eight minutes of the scene and then was replaced by former conductor Kurt Adler. Because Kurt Adler's a bad motherfucker. Shut your mouth. I'm just talking about Kurt Adler. <laughs> <laughs> we should Google what Kurt Adler looks like. January 15, 1958 was a Wednesday, and uh, Challenge Records released a popular instrumental, with the exception of one word. What? Challenge Records released a popular instrumental, but it's it's an instrumental except there's one word in the song, and that one word. Oh, uh, and the one word is tequila. Yes. Did you know that? I'm just thinking of a song from this time that was an instrumental. Written by Daniel Flores and recorded by the Champs. It was either that or Wipe Out. 
and I think white I guess powder, they do only say white powder. I think white powder is in the f- later on. Later on, yeah, sixties. Well, initially marketed as a B side of a forty-five RPM record of a song called "Train to Nowhere." Tequila would quickly become the best-selling song in the U.S. after being played by a disc jockey in Cleveland. Pee Wee Herman and those big white yeah, shoes. Yeah, it's all I think about is Pee Wee. <laughs> yeah, it reached the number one spot on the Billboard magazine's Hot 100 chart for the week ending March 28th. And then, Sweet. of course, Pee Wee Herman made it huge. Yeah, uh, he did. I'll never get that. See, oh my god, hear that song. Yep. Uh, it's so goddamn god funny. Bless Pee Wee Herman. Large Marge. She died. What about her? What was that? Do with- she died. God, what was it? There was something I saw on, on Large Twitter Marge or died? something that Large Marge, it was the anniversary of when Large Marge supposedly had died or something. I don't know. I don't fucking remember. Never mind. Oh, because in the movie, she, they talk about because she her, was dead. They show she her tombstone. And I see, right. Or her memorial or whatever. Uh, Saturday, January 18th, I got a racist story. You ready for a racist story? Aww. But it ends good. This one ends oh, good. with the uh, oppressed people winning this all right, let's hear it. So this, I got this from uh, Brandon Weber, a contributing writer for NativeAmericanToday.com. Okay. And I don't know if you know this. Have you ever heard of Maxton, North Carolina? No. Well, there's a historical marker in Maxton, North Carolina to commemorate this event that became known as the Battle of Hayes Pond. God, that sounds familiar, but I don't. Maybe I'm you've heard of it. I'm not going to tell me I've never heard it. of this. The Lumbee tribe of North Carolina had fought long and hard for tribal recognition and respect. Yeah. They had 55,000 members. It was the largest tribe east of the Mississippi and the ninth largest in the nation. But while the tribe was recognized by the state of North Carolina in 1885, the federal government dragged its feet on official recognition until 1956. That's terrible. And even then, stopping short of full recognition. So in 56, Ku Klux Klan Act. I always thought it was the Ku Klux Klan. I don't know it's, no, Ku- it's Ku Klux. It's Ku Klux Klan. In 1956, uh, they had activities in the area. And they'd already been ratcheting up in the wake of the 1954 Supreme Court decision. You know, we thought that those guys are all over that shit being assholes. Yeah. After the recognition of the Lumbee in North Carolina, the Klan wizard, James W. Catfish Cole, noted piece of shit, launched a campaign of terror against the tribe, questioning its indigenous status and telling the Greensboro Daily News, there's about 30,000 half-breeds up in Robinson County, and we're going to have some cross burnings and scare them up. Cole and other members, and you can see pictures of Cole online. He looks like a fucking piece of fucking shit. Piece of shit Cole and other members of the KKK accused the Lumbee of being mixed race people who were intermingling with African Americans and whites and called for a massive Klan rally of 5,000 members on January 18, 1958 at Hayes Pond. The purpose was to remind Indians of their quote unquote place, place. in the racial, racial, yep. racial order. Uh, and so that month, Klansmen started distributing a flyer to organize the gathering. Uh, saying, hear the Klan clud speak on why I believe in segregation, the flyer announced. I guess a Klan clud is a is a chaplain, uh, a Klan chaplain. It's called a Klan clud, which yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, in the days leading up to the rally, crosses were burned in front of at least two homes, one belonging to a Native American family that had recently moved into a white neighborhood, and the other to a Lumbee woman who had been rumored to be dating a white guy. A caravan with loudspeakers drove through town to drum up support, Hurling racial slurs. Jesus. It's fucking pieces of shit. Uh, as evening settled on Saturday, January 18th, though, the Klansmen had prepared for the rally in a large field with loudspeakers, a cross to be burned, and a large banner. It was going to be a good old love and hate rally. But in the end, only 50 to 100 supporters showed up. Oh, good. 
So Cole, who was from South Carolina, misunderstood the racial dynamics in Lumbee territory and the extent to which the tribe, which had been struggling for sovereignty for decades, was prepared to defend its motherfucking self and other indigenous people. So before Cole could even begin his prepared speech, more than 500 well-armed men, Lumbee people, as well as members of the Tuscarora and Koheri tribes, began to emerge from the surrounding dark. He was accosted on the makeshift stage by one of the members of the tribe. A shoving match ensued, and one tribal member shot out the solitary floodlight that they had. Nice. Others began shooting rifles into the air to disperse the crowd. You didn't know exactly what you are going to do when you got there, but you were excited about going, remembered one Lumbee, Ray Little Turtle. Despite both sides being armed, there were zero fatalities and no serious injuries. Knowing their neighbors were prepared to fight to the finish, The Klansmen fled in all directions, with Cole leaving his wife behind, of course. Of course, yeah. But the Lumbees reportedly helped Mrs. Cole push her car out of the ditch where it had gotten stuck during the panic. Because who's the better fucking right, people? Right, exactly. One year later, she divorced her husband, uh, courtesy of the Fayetteville Observer. Uh, we had to do what we had to do, Lumbee member Lee Ansel Maynard, who was 33 at the time of the rally, said at the reunion event in 2016 that they had. If we hadn't done it, they would have soon been in our front yard. Yes, that's true. Local law enforcement showed up after the altercation had taken place, of course, but by uh-huh. then the field was clear. The Lumbees gathered up, discarded robes and rally banner, and marched back into Maxton to celebrate, which included burning catfish coal in effigy. So oh, that yeah. was a win. Good, 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 good. People. And that's the same day that Willie O'Ree became the first black pa- player in National Hockey League History when he debuted for the Boston Bruins in a game against the Montreal Canadiens. Is he pretty much like the only black p- player ever? No, there's oh. been more. Oh, I have never seen any. Not a lot. I mean, I don't watch ho- hockey, so maybe that's why I've never seen any. <laughs> I've really yeah. never yeah, seen a lot of white that. ones either. <laughs> yeah, I don't really. I watch hockey for the fights. Uh, and then that brings us to another birthday. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Look up the school for this Darn guy, unfortunately, no. and the, and the uh, notable alumni. Oh, you don't have to right now. But we have, uh, <laughs> born on uh, January 20th, 1958, an American actor widely known for his role of Lance Cumson, the irresponsible grandson of Angela Channing, played by Jane Wyman in Falcon Crest. You know who it is? Lorenzo Lamas. Born, yes. Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> Lorenzo Lamas. Who is most macho? Who, who is most macho? Quieres Quieres most macho. Quieres macho. Lorenzo Lamas. 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 Oh, Fernando, yeah, his father, yeah. He was born in Santa Monica, California, the son of Argentine actor Fernando Lamas. Yeah. And Norwegian-American actress Arlene Dahl. He's a stepson of swimmer and film star Esther Williams. Did you know that? Who married his father when Lamas was 11 years old. Oh. Uh, both Williams and Dahl were best friends of actress Jane Wyman, who knew him from birth and would later work alongside him on Falcon, Falcon Crest. Crest. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he was brought up in Pacific Palisades, California, and moved to New York City in 1971. In 1979, he took up Taekwondo. How about that? Yeah. Uh, he, he graduated from the Admiral Farragut Academy in Pine Beach, New Jersey in 1975. Team colors are blue and yellow. Home of the Blue Jackets, baby. Home of the Blue Jackets. Notable alumni include Rear Admiral Alan Shepard, <laughs> Brigadier General Charles Duke, and also, um, I'll find somebody that we know. 
Stephen Stills. You know who that is? Yeah. He was. He went to that same school. So there you go. Uh, so now I've discovered I don't have to look it up in advance. I can just Google it while I'm talking. So there you go. Lorenzo Lamas is now alive. And that brings us to January 21st, 1958, which was a Tuesday. And the my beautiful bride, Amy, yes. who looks better and better every year that she ages. I think that's a bunch of bullshit, but whatever. It has a murder story. Yes. And I'm you are gorgeous. You are a beautiful woman, Senator. People don't know how beautiful you are. Stop. Stop saying that. All right. Okay, you're gross. I'm going to talk about the killer couple, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. That are killer couple? And they were Tell the inspiration of the 1994 film Natural Born Killers. Oh, you're kidding and me. And Badlands from uh, the, and yeah, the I did 2004 not know, movie Badlands. I don't know that movie, but I didn't know that Natural Born Killers was based it's on loosely, real It's loosely, very oh, loosely. Loosely. So- Hollywood, you know, California. portrays this couple as this lust-filled, you know, hell-bent, nothing to lose, love each other until they drive off a like cliff. Like Bonnie and Clyde type kind of thing? Kind of deal, yes. But it's, there's really a question. It's hard to tell. Uh, if it was really like that. Yeah, what, it, what the deal is. So, let's start in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. Charles Starkweather was one of seven children born okay. November 24th, 1938. Wow. To parents Guy and Helen Starkweather. Okay. He was born with a condition called genu verum, causing him to be bow-legged. Oh. And later on in life, he also developed a speech impediment. So, Salt and Peppa would have been into him. He claimed. Because they liked the bow-legged one. Oh, that's right. He claimed this had made his life very difficult growing up because he was often teased and bullied. So for the, for the speech impediment and or the, the bow-legged both. both? I mean, yeah. Kids pick on you for anything. Kids so, are assholes. Kids are assholes. Over if you're time, a kid listening to this, start, you're an asshole. All right, shush. Go ahead. Over time, right. he started getting a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. And then he started to get... As he got older, he started getting stronger. He was, like, working out and okay. stuff. So then he started being a bully. Getting stronger. Yeah, in revenge for all the bullying he so took. So then, yes. So after he left school at 18, he dropped out. Okay. He got a job as a trash man. Trash man. Um, And then he meets, then he goes and works Somewhere else, and he meets 13-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. And oh, he was 18 gross. at the time. Oh, a, so the same thing as, like, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, kind of, yeah. And the two of them hit so it off and kind of liked each other right away. Yeah, people dated And they start dating. God, but Carol's weird. parents were not cool with the whole deal. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Uh, I don't want some 18-year-old bow-legged future murderer with a lisp to... Right. Date my thirteen year old. He kind of had a thing for James Dean, like he oh, tried to dress like, like him, him okay, and yeah. put do his hair like him, and like he felt like he was, was like that weirdo. Him. So he, our daughter. He eventually got fired from his trash job for not putting in the work, and they told him he was lazy. And yeah, he can't be lazy in a garbage job, man. And at this time, he also lost his rented room because he wasn't paying the rent. So yeah, you got to pay your rent, motherfucker. Then on December first, nineteen fifty seven, Starkweather. Um, abducted employee Robert Colvert from a Lincoln gas station after the employee had refused to allow Starkweather to get something on working credit. Oh, he, he, he was so trying he, to buy a stuffed animal for Carol Ann, and oh, he said he, he would pay it, do it on credit. And the guy was like, "No, you." Ha-. So he kidnapped the dude. So he, 
he abducted him, yeah. And then he takes him to the secluded area in Lancaster County Road and shoots him in the head. Oh, shit. Then on Sunday, January 19th, yeah. 1958. Oh, the same day that... Uh, we already said that date. I so know the same did. day that... Uh, oh, yeah, that's the day that... Um, that... Uh, the Klan rally thing. Oh, no, that was the 18th. Oh, same day that nothing happened. Nothing All right. Happened, so after they had been dating for some months, Carol said, Carol said later that she broke up with Charles and told him she didn't want to see him. But he wasn't going to give up at the... And he just pursued no. her and pursued her. Yeah, a guy with a lisp and a bow leg that loves James Dean is not going to give up. So on Tuesday, the 21st of yeah. January, he goes to Carol's family home. And an argument breaks out between him and her parents. Oh, so he argues with the parents because she broke up with him? No, no he's not supposed to see her. And he goes to the home, and the parents oh. are like, you need to get out of here. We told you you can't see her. Yeah, you can't her. see her, yeah. And so he shoots them both and kills Holy them. shit. Then he goes in, and he kills her two-year-old half-sister. Oh. And then he hides their bodies in an outhouse at the back of the property. Holy shit. So... She's not home when all this goes down. She's yeah. at school. Oh, she's not even there? She's at school. So she comes home, and it seems like the house is just empty. But then she finds him alone, and nobody's there. And so at this point, she says that Starkweather told her that her family were all being held hostage, and if she didn't cooperate with him, they would all be killed. Oh. That's what she says. So, so in Natural Born Killers, the father is Rodney Dangerfield, right? He's a... Wife beater think, and stuff? I think. So I that know. part's probably not. Yeah. So sorry. Carol and Charles then spend the next six days in the home. With those dead bodies? Yes. During this time, rel relatives came by on two occasions to see where the family was, as it was unusual for no one to have seen them. Wait, well, they're in the, the dead bodies are in the outhouse. Yes, but they're on the property, whatever. Right. So they're not in there with the dead So the first But visit, she still has no idea. Right. The first visit was from Carol's older sister, Barbara Von Bush, who attempted to visit the property on January 25th. Okay. Carol answered the door but wouldn't let her in and said that the whole family had the flu. That was a Saturday. And Barbara thought it was kind of odd. And afterward, after leaving the property, she did contact the police and asked them to do a welfare check, which they did and were met by Carol with the same story. Yeah. And then they just figured it was true and they left. So a few days later on January 27th, um, that was a Monday. Yes. Velda Bartlett's mother, Pansy Street, who was Carol's grandmother, okay? Carol's, Carol's grandma yeah. also came to visit the family, but was turned away by Carol, and that made her very suspicious. So she also contacted the police. Yeah. And then detectives were called Do another to investigate. Check, yeah. So then when they arrived, they s they see that she had placed a note on the front door saying the family was sick oh. and signed it Miss Bartlett, which was her two-year-old sister's name, not hers, which is Miss Fugate. That's weird. And the, the, the bodies had to be stinking at this point. Right. In the, the outhouse. The door read, the, the note on the door read, stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. Miss Bartlett. Huh. They knocked a few times but got no one an no answer, so they looked for other ways to gain entry. 
By the time they gained access to the Bartlett property via a window, Charles and Carol were gone. Oh, they weren't even there. The bodies of her family were discovered later that evening by a family member checking the back of the house as the police had not checked the backyard. They found the body of 57-year-old Marion Bartlett in a chicken coop wrapped in old rags. Nearby in an outdoor toilet, they found the body of 35-year-old Velda also wrapped up. Marion and Velda had died of small caliber bullet wounds to the head. The remains of Betty Jean, Marion and Velda's two-year-old daughter, were found in the outdoor toilet placed inside a cardboard box. Betty Jean had a skull fracture. The investigation and hunt for Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate had begun. Charles and Carol left the property on January 27th, it's believed, shortly after her grandmother had left. And then they headed 20 miles east of Lincoln towards Bennett, Nebraska, to the farmhouse of 70-year-old August Mayer. He was a family friend. Okay. So they went to his place. Starkweather shoots him dead that same day after they had a disagreement. That's uncalled for. So then they spent the night at his house, and the next day hitched a ride with two teenagers, 17-year-old Robert Jensen and 16-year-old Carol King, after Charles and Carol's car got stuck in the mud. That is not the same Carol King that's the singer, because she's probably not born yet. So then Starkweather, these people, they get a ride with these other kids. Starkweather holds them at gunpoint once he's in the car, telling them to go towards the Myers farm. Okay. Both were shot and robbed. Carol King was stabbed multiple times in the stomach and groin area, left naked from the waist down. There were no signs of sexual activity. But other reports said that he tried to rape her, but he couldn't. Some, for some reason. So they took Robert Jensen's car and fled from Bennett to the home of... I mean, Ingram. where would you even fit in that rape with all this? Like, where I would know, you even right? have time to even do that? Bit? So they, they take the car and they flee from Bennett to the home of industrialist C. Lauer Ward in a wealthy part of Lincoln. C. Lauer Ward. Okay. Starkweather knew about the area from his trash collection days. I can't imagine what Lincoln, Nebraska looked like in the 50s like this. Charles used his gun to threaten Lillian Fensel, the ward's maid, okay. to gain entry to the property. The only other person home at this time was Clara Ward, the, the wife. Okay. Both women were led upstairs. Mrs. Ward's body was in a bedroom on the floor. She was stabbed in the chest, back, and neck. Yikes. The ward's maid, Lillian Fensel, was found in another bedroom. She had cuts on her arms and legs. She was stabbed in the chest and stomach. Both <sighs> women were bound and gagged. Mr. Ward was at home during the murder of his wife and maid. He returned later that day and was subsequently killed shortly after returning home. Mr. Ward's body lay inside the front door. He had been shot in the left temple and the back on the right side and stabbed in the neck. So Carol and Charles fled the property in the Ward's car. So they switched cars. Yeah, another car. After robbing the house of small valuables, they head west for Washington where Starkweather's brother lived. Okay. While driving... Starkweather decided they needed to get a new vehicle as he knew the one he was in would soon be on police radars. Noticing a parked car then on the side of the road by the turnoff to the Ayers Natural Bridge, Charles stops the car and gets out, walks toward this car where Merle Collison, a 37-year-old salesman from Great Falls, Montana, lay napping inside. Oh, and this is going to be our hero, I can just tell. So he's sleeping in his car. Yeah. Walking up to Collison, Starkweather tells him, get out. When he doesn't, Starkweather fires multiple rounds into the car. A bypasser, Joe Sprinkle. Joe Sprinkle going to say today. Notices Charles and the two parked cars, so he walks over to offer assistance. Charles said he needed help with the emergency brake. As Joe Sprinkle approaches the car, he notices Merle Collison's body stuffed under the dashboard. Oh, shit. By the time he looks up, Starkweather has a shotgun pointed at his face. Oh, no. Thinking quickly, Sprinkle grabs the gun and starts trying to wrestle it from Starkweather's grip. Go, Joe Sprinkle! And then it's at this point, Natrona County Deputy Sheriff William Romer drives up. 
So he gets out to investigate, and a young girl comes flying out from Collison's car, running towards him, screaming that Starkweather was a madman and that he was going to kill her. Oh. Um, Starkweather was already making his getaway yeah. by the time Deputy Romer had a chance to react to what was going on. But Joe Sprinkle's fine, right? Starkweather had already begun to quickly drive away to evade capture. Yes, Joe Sprinkle's okay. fine. Romer then radios for help, and his colleagues immediately set up roadblocks to try to stop Charles after Carol confirms Starkweather's identity. After Charles breaks through one of the roadblocks, a car chase ensues, eventually leading to Charles's car being shot at by police, forcing Man. him to slam the brakes on. Yeah. Eventually, he surrenders himself when put under direct fire and is and is brought in for custody for questioning and conviction. Damn. So initially, Charles admits everything. Yeah. He admits to all of it, and he claims that Carol was a victim, that he held her hostage, but later on, he changes his story multiple times attempting to implicate Carol after he finds out she had turned on him. In his later statements, he claims she was a willing participant in the crimes. Really? Carol's statement of events hasn't altered. So She maintains to this day that she went along out of fear yeah. and because she thought she was protecting her family who were being held hostage. Yeah. She claims she didn't know her family had already been killed until the evening that they were both arrested. It is noted on record that she was prescribed a sleeping aid by the doctor on duty while in custody because she wouldn't stop crying after learning about the death of her family and was allegedly inconsolable. Really? So maybe she really didn't know. There have been much debate over the years and in the court regarding Carol's role in the events of those 60 days. From May 5th to the 23rd, 1958, Starkweather's trial took place, and he was found guilty on one count of murder for Robert Jensen and sentenced to death. Was not tried for the other murders no? because he was executed on at 9.45 a.m. Oh, on June 25th, 1959. Ah. Carol was sentenced to life in prison. Her trial took place from October 27th to November 21st, 1958. Yeah. She served 18 years and was released in 1976. Oh, really? So it's hard to say, you know? Yeah, if she was really part of it or not. Like, I think then, like... <sighs> You know, women were so oppressed. and The fact that he changed his story so much and that yeah. she was consistent makes me think that maybe... And if she was really that inconsolable, like maybe even if she knew they were gone, maybe she hadn't, you know, come to terms with it or something, you know? Yeah. Know. That's crazy. That's so a that's, crazy story. That was, a, that, was that, yep. Wow. Uh, that's that's crazy. We We... Couple things we skipped uh, on that January twenty second, the Wednesday that uh, the day after. Um, I only keep this because this is kind of notable. This is kind of for you conspiracy theorists out there. On Wednesday, January twenty second, nineteen fifty eight, UFO conspiracy theorist and retired U.S. Marine Major Donald Kehoe, co-founder of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena appeared for a live interview on the CBS program Armstrong Circle Theater to discuss government censorship of his findings oh. and was himself censored by the TV network. Oh, they wouldn't play him? Well, during the, during, aliens? during the episode called UFO Enigma of the Skies, Kehoe was starting to say, we are meeting in secret with a congressional committee. If these meetings were public, it would be proved. He said that much, and then they cut his microphone off. It was turned off by the show's producer, Robert Costello. Oops. The silencing came as Kehoe departed from his script, which had been pre-screened by the U.S. Air Force. Oh. So as far back as 1958, they were silencing people about UFO stuff. So Yeah. Uh, we're going to soon know about all that, I think, when you the think? aliens tell us. 
Um, and then we missed Ellen DeGeneres' birthday and Anita Baker's birthday. They're both in, born on the same day. Did you know that Anita Baker was born in Toledo, Ohio? No, I did not know That's that. That's where I'm from. I know. Uh, and then the toy building brick, Lego, uh, had its first patent in January 28th, 1958. Yeah. And to celebrate that date, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's a Back to the Future Lego car with the car, and they have it set, the date is set to that date oh. uh, to commemorate that. Uh, and then Roy Campanella uh, was paralyzed. <laughs> From an automobile accident on the on January twentieth, nineteen fifty eight, from the uh, where was he paralyzed? He was paralyzed from an automobile accident after his car hit a patch of ice, crashed into a telephone pole, and overturned near his home. Campanella, an African American player in the Negro National League from thirty seven to forty five, before being signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers in forty eight, partially recovered the use of his arms and hands through therapy. And would be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1969, but he would remain unable to walk, passing away in 1993, sadly. I January 30th, 1958, the United States launched a satellite into orbit for the first time as Explorer 1 was sent up from Florida's Cape Canaveral on a Jupiter-sea rocket at 10.47 p.m. local time, almost four months after the launch of Sputnik 1 by the Soviet Union. January 31st, 1958, uh, the quote, what counts is not necessarily the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog was uttered by, do you know who? No. The famous quote is by? No. You've heard that quote, right? No. A lot of people attribute it to Mark Twain, but it's actually President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Oh. Um, he said it in a speech to the RNC on January 31st, 1958. Uh, within a year, newspapers started quoting Bear Bryant with the same thing. Uh Apparently, Bear Bryant did say that a lot, but it was originally Dwight D. Eisenhower. And not Mark Twain, not Bear Bryant. And that brings to the end of January 1998. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.